0: Hello and welcome back to the Miss Amanda Chen show. We're now in season three of the 100 Masked Men series where I anonymously interview different men from all walks of life about their self-identity, expectations from society, and how that affects our self-worth, specifically with a focus on gender. June is Pride Month, so this week I sit down with men who are challenged about their personal understanding of masculinity when interacting with members of the LGBTQ community and in sitting with the discomfort that comes with that privilege masked man number 63 is the masked inquirer he shares a story about being a health visitor in the uk which is basically a nurse that visits families to check on the health of a newborn baby he reflects on how a lot of female health visitors and mothers would isolate men and how that could contribute to how men may feel like they have no role with childcare. My question is, if women have been fighting to have a role in business or other male-dominated spaces, is it the role of men to fight for theirs in childcare, or do women have a responsibility to make space? Can we not ask for more out of men, or do we also need more out of women as well? Let's get into it. I hope you enjoy the show. Seems that we both have something in common in terms of our curiosity for understanding masculinity as a concept and how it affects us in society and also in our interactions with others. But uh, being a woman and interviewing men about masculinity was different in the sense that I was curious and I couldn't really relate. So there was that opposition that really worked out for me. But as you are a man interviewing other men... How was that experience like for you? Because I guess you could connect with them maybe a little bit more non-verbally in, in a different uh, experiential level. So, what was that process like for you?
1: Yeah, so these things are never straightforward, are they? Because mm-hmm. I mean, that question implies that men are all you know one homogeneous group. So, a lot a lot of my early work was interviewing specifically interviewing different types of men so um, some straight men some gay men some men with physical impairments so you could connect in certain ways but there were still challenges I think in other ways and I, I think the other thing is you know whenever you're doing research interviews there's an advantage in some ways of not being aligned with the people that you're interviewing in the sense that you can you can be genuinely more um, naive. And, and the people that you're talking to pick up on that naivety. And that sort of helps move the interviews along because they're wanting to explain more because they know that you really don't understand. So I think, I think sometimes you can miss things in research interviews if you're too aligned with the people that you're interviewing because you're then working with a lot of shared assumptions. So points don't need to be raised or you, you forget to raise them because there's a, a hidden assumption. So I guess some, I mean, some simple examples were, I think the interviews I was sort of most concerned about because I wanted to get it right was some of the interviews with the gay men. So although I've got a, a background in nursing, and obviously I've you know worked alongside a lot of guys that are gay. I felt that I needed to be a little bit careful in those interviews, in ensuring that I didn't offend. But I also wanted to show that I understood a little bit about their world and their community through relationships that i would had with gay men at work and stuff. So that was, that was quite challenging.
0: So did you think that uh, you were afraid to offend them in the sense that you might have felt that society wise, you had more power just by being a heterosexual male? Because when I, I had that same consideration when I was speaking to other men, where I was like, you know, I guess you can call me an empowered, feminized woman. And I am, you know, talking to them about gender issues where technically right now in today's society, women have been really honing in on that conversation and they're, I, you know, I'm acknowledging the discomfort and, and trying to keep the conversation open so that there is room for people to ask questions. But I'm, I'm curious to, to know on your your personal experience with speaking to gay men, if there was a power dynamic in, in maybe feeling overly sympathetic or overcompensating in some aspects, with that conversation that might have potentially jeopardized the conversation.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's pretty much exactly that. And, you know, I'm also quite aware that as part of that power dynamic, you are, so I was in a privileged position in quite a few ways in those interviews, you know, privileged position in terms of, I guess, my sort of class background a privileged position in being a, a straight guy. And, you know, the fact that that fits in with so many masculine norms and values, or the things that seem to be valued. And then there's the big thing about being, being aware that as, as being part of a, a heterosexual straight man, you know, there is, whether we like it or not, there is elements of embedded homophobia could easily form part of that and that's where the not wanting to offend comes in so it's about power definitely but it's also about trying to ensure that any any aspects of embedded homophobia that might be there don't creep into the interview and that becomes a little bit it becomes a bit sad in a way because you you know, research interviews to me should be fairly free flowing. It should be a nice, chatty conversation. So if I'm there, sort of treading on eggshells, it's not, it, it's a bit more stilted, or potentially it can be a bit more stilted. I mean, I have to say that, you know, the, nearly every guy that I've interviewed over the years has been very giving or forgiving in that. You know, any any blunders and errors that I might make that, you know, especially when I was starting out as a researcher, they were very, uh, they were very gentle with me. You know, they 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 sort of helped me through the interviews as much as the other way around. I think there's, there's a lot about power, isn't there, in those sort of relationships?
0: Yeah, 100 percent. And the,
1: the interviews, the interviews with the guys that were physically impaired were very interesting because you've got a a different dynamic going on there. Most of the guys that I interviewed were people that had acquired impairments. So they weren't born, there's a couple that were born with impairments, but most of them were acquired usually through accidents. And that's quite interesting because there's a lot of presentation of hegemonic norms. There's a lot of continuation to show and demonstrate during those interviews that they are, you know, they are still what one guy called a, a red-blooded male. But at the same time, that's sort of juxtaposed with the fact that they they have to acknowledge their physical limitations, which is in a way acknowledging to some extent a, a loss of what society values in men, you know, which is that physicality. So the, the same guy who was talking about being a red-blooded male was also talking about finding ways to satisfy his wife. And he was he was talking not really sexually. He was talking about things to do around the house that he could still manage. You know, he was trying to focus on things that he could still do whilst acknowledging that there was a lot that he couldn't now do. And it it was all very strongly tied into... The fact that being able to do DIY, as one example. DIY. I don't know if you use that phrase, do it yourself, DIY. You know, stuff around the house is part of what you're expected to do as a guy.
0: Mm, I think that's really interesting, the physicality that you mentioned there in terms of just like your sexual expression, you know, whether you're speaking to straight or gay men and whether you're speaking to people that are physically fit or disabled and like you just said right now with your self activities of just like exerting that actual physicality as a male expression and then i read a lot about your conversation on how health is often seen by men as a feminized issue and even you know to have the concept of self reflection or you know mental health to have you know hidden politics of gender within that so what was the journey for you to decide to get involved in the study of masculinity, what was that personal journey for for you in learning more about that politics of gender, about how how health has been that feminized space, how self-reflection in general has always been something that is mostly in like chicklet and mostly in women's studies and women's books, and something that has been mainly missed in men. And I think that is what is bringing us to the space where there's just a lot of inability for men to express themselves and have the vocabulary to talk about self-reflection or general health or even ask for help when it comes to their personal health?
1: Yeah, so I think we make, we make a bit of a mistake about some of that stuff in that the, the very way that we talk about emotional expression is feminized in the sense that you know, men are known to be quite emotionally expressive. It's just emotions that are on the whole, not particularly positive, you know, anger, violence, that <laughs> men are renowned for their ability to be emotionally expressive. And I think, I think the other aspect of that, the thing that we don't take into account is that some of the caring expression of emotion for men is also tied up in action. So what I would say is a lot of the time, just because men are not that able a lot of the time to verbally articulate their emotions, it doesn't mean that they're not emotionally expressive. I mean, I can give my own dad as an example. You know, he's he's not a very tactile guy. And you and would very find it very difficult to verbally express what he feels about anything but in terms of how he feels about me you know he's demonstrated for almost 60 years how much he cares through a variety of circumstances for me you know some some of it was his ability to carry on providing when my mum left which was quite interesting because that was really tough for him so I, you know, I, I remember I was about 13 and I remember he would come home from work. He'd do everything that needed to be done in terms of getting food ready, making sure the washing up was done, sorting stuff out. And then he would do something that never heard him do. So night after night, for quite a while, you'd then hear him upstairs crying. And that I don't think I'd ever heard or seen him cry. I still don't think I've seen him cry. I heard him at that point in time. For a while. But, you know, so to me, his emotional expression was tied up in a couple of things. One, which he couldn't help but show, which was the provision of food, carrying on going to work and providing a roof over our heads, making sure that we were okay, you know, that our packed lunches were ready for school. And then emotion that he couldn't show or didn't want to show, which was obviously the the hurt and the upset. And a lot of that hurt came out as anger for him. So he was okay with expressing that as anger, but not expressing it as upset. So I think we, we do need to be a little bit careful when we talk about men and emotional expression. It's a lot more nuanced, I think, than a lot of the literature would have us believe.
0: That's true. It's not actually an inability to express. It's more just, it is expressed through different means. And I think again, it's back to that physicality because you can physically express anger. It's, it's a lot more nuanced to express pain, hurt, or any of those kind of more sticky feelings when it comes to, without uh, articulating it in, in actual words to, to show that without physicality. So what was that? What, what brought you into wanting to interview more men? So I know you were working in healthcare for a little bit. You also, um, your partner was working in feminism studies as well. So what was that dynamic like and how did that change your overall concept of your personal definition of masculinity as you went through that journey?
1: Yeah. So I guess, I think it started a lot earlier than that
0: Mm -hmm.
1: because I had, you know, I am, I've always been a small guy. I'm pretty, pretty tiny in height. And I think that raises issues as you're going through school about how you deal with that and different, obviously different people deal with that in different ways. I was very fortunate in some of the friends that I had around me. So I was, I was never, I was never bullied, which I know a a lot of guys who I knew at school who were on the small side were quite isolated and bullied. I think I was quite lucky because I made, I made a very good friend as soon as I started school at five who's still my best friend now 50 you know 50 odd years later and he's quite he's quite tough so <laughs> I think I think that was luck really but I was always confident and outgoing as well so I think I think I learned to deal with that mainly through humor so I think I suppose even at that age I was a, a, aware of my gender I wouldn't say overly explicitly aware but it was always there so you're sort of finding ways to to do that gender dance as it were and you know avoid situations that could be could be bad and difficult and then I guess further down the line so went into nursing and that was pretty gender split though it's a long time ago it was back in the 80s and we were we were actually in a completely different building than the female nurses so it was a bit like it was a bit like being in a what you would call a male frat house i guess a bit like being in a male dormitory you know so guys aged between sort of 18 and 30 mainly younger guys who were all either doing their nurse training or were qualified nurses and, and we, had, we had the run of three big Victorian houses, whereas the, the women were <laughs> really restricted. They, they couldn't have visitors after 11 at night. They had an, an intercom system, and it would be announced over the intercom that there was like 10 minutes for the visitors to leave, and then it was locked down. And Sometimes they'd do searches of the rooms to make sure that they didn't have guys or any visitors hidden away in the rooms that shouldn't be there. Whereas we have none of that. So it was, quite, it was quite gender split. And in some ways, I think probably reinforced gender stereotypes. And then I guess I started studying health in a bit more broader way. I ended up going to university and doing more sociological courses because I've been a real science boy by background. And I think that opened my eyes up to health as a much broader issue but also began to raise questions around gender as part of that. And as you said, the, around the same time, my, um, my wife started doing a degree that involved women's studies and politics. So it raised issues at home as well. Although we'd, we'd always had a relatively unconventional split, I would say, in the marriage as, as much as you can. In, in systems that are patriarchally driven so I, I did earn most of the money but that's because we live in a society that you know doesn't pay women very well and doesn't facilitate or, or certainly didn't back then in the 80s didn't facilitate career progression and stuff very readily but in terms of a lot of other things at home it was a much more even split so you know, I was I would take my share of washing, cooking, stuff like that. I didn't do a lot of the DIY stuff around the house. She was much better at all that than me, so that was a little bit unconventional. Um, and then I went part time when when my my daughter was born, specifically to make sure I was embedded in that. So I think I think that was the real period of time that started generating an interest and I then ended up working in something that I don't think you you have in the Americas which is what we call health visiting so health visiting in the UK at that time every single child that was born without exception would have a health visitor from when they were about eight weeks old until they started school at four or five years old and you do a series of visits with the family for that child and that that really raised a lot of issues as well doing that job because that was very different than nursing. I'd, when I was nursing I worked in mainly in intensive care, coronary care, cardiac surgery so areas that had a lot of male nurses already and that were quite a lot less feminized than a lot of areas of nursing because you've got all the technology, you know, you've got all the equipment. So, so health visiting was completely different. A lot of my colleagues were much older women, in a, in a sense, almost from a different generation, and and quite fixed in their gender views. Interesting, so,
0: yeah. So, how was that experience like? Because so in. I guess, more of a hospital sense of nursing, it was a, a bigger, more established space, you had all of the tools and equipment. And I guess that's more of an esteemed position of nursing, compared to nursing when it comes to childcare, or healthcare in, in a more personal care aspect. So what was that? Why? How was that shift like for you? How did people judge you? How were you treated? How did you look differently? what was your change in outlook at uh, Feminine roles in in nursing, specifically.
1: Yeah, I mean it was interesting. So a, a lot of people wanted to do health visiting. It was a very sought after area of work because it's one of the only areas that was Monday to Friday, nine to five. Obviously, most nursing is shift work. So although in some ways it's lower status, in other ways it was highly sought after. But in terms in terms of it being a very feminized area, it, it really was, and. I think my my colleagues were, I think, quite unsure to start with. They'd, they'd not had a lot of experience of working with men in health visiting. I think at that time, nationally, there was only about, I think it was about 2% of all health visitors were men. So very few. So some of them had never worked with male health visitors. In fact, most of them had not worked with male health visitors. So I think it was difficult for my colleagues to know how it would work and how it would fit in. I would say, in terms of the families that I visited, I would say most of the time it was it was good. Um, I was received very positively. I was a very similar age to a lot of the people that were having children. My own children were young, so I think my when I started health visiting, I, I think my kids were. Round about eight and four, something like that. So I'd just been through what a lot of these families were either experiencing or going to experience. So I think that helped a lot with with the families that I was engaged with and going in to see. We did have a we deliberately had a system where we we always saw the women at least once antenatally, and as part of that visit, myself and my immediate colleague that I worked with we would both explain that there were two health visitors that worked for this particular GP practice um, and that if they weren't comfortable with the guy visiting then that was absolutely fine and we'd get the other colleague to visit. I don't think that happened very often. I think quite a lot of the the women and the families that we've seen were quite curious. I think to see how it would go having a a male health visitor. So on on the whole, I think it went okay. For me, it was it, the whole thing was really disappointing because I went I went into health visiting because I'd I'd been told that there was a lot more health promotion work done, and it wasn't it wasn't just about mums and babies, but actually in practice it was pretty much about mums and babies. So I, I began for looking to look for a way out fairly quickly. But it, it did It did also trigger a concern about, about how dads were treated and how fathers were treated. And again, that combined with what had been going on in my home life with my partner doing women's studies and stuff, I think those two things really drove that interest in gender big time.
0: Okay, so how were fathers being treated?
1: I think most of the time they were ignored. Occasionally I saw a degree of them being patronised. I think there was certainly an element of my colleagues at times colluding with the mums to make the father feel stupid in some way. And I I don't think that was done out of any bad intent at all. I I think for my colleagues it was probably a, a way of trying to Maintain and deepen that bond with the mum because she was most likely going to be the person that they would be working with for at least the next five years. And sometimes you work with them a lot longer because not many families just have one child. So, I mean, for example, my colleague who I was working with was not only seeing children from the same family, but she'd been there that long, she was beginning to see grandchildren from the ones that she'd visited when they were babies. So it's a, mm. it's a long relationship it can be a very long relationship so I think that that collusion where where dads were perhaps made to feel a bit stupid about something I, I don't think had any bad intent I think it was it was about the health to trying to d- deepen that bond with the mum.
0: yeah and I think it's interesting because that's that's more of a you know let's align on just commonality but in the sense of making the fathers look a little foolish or stupid or in that sense. And I think it is more in um, an endearing way as an, oh, you know, dad just doesn't know better kind of thing. He's just not a woman concept. But then I think that gets more convoluted once pop culture and media started to further personalize that dad figure. You know the dad bod, you know the Simpson character, the the kind of doesn't know any better and just is always just fumbling around idea, yeah. and then I think that is what I don't know if you experienced this or saw this friction between um, a caring, nurturing dad who's just kind of just well meaning, but you know not a lot, um, not able to create a lot of impact in his household because clearly mom really drives the force there and then the complication of trying to exert your masculinity at the same time and then you'll have these kind of like more silent resilient strict fathers that are you know not the dad bod
1: character so did you did
0: you notice that duality or there's is there more in that spectrum
1: yeah I think I mean it is it is a spectrum you see a lot of different things but I think there are elements of that and I think part of it and i I tried very hard to focus on this, not, not only with the families, but with my colleagues as well, about trying to explain to the family, because we did do some antenatal sessions where the dads were there as well. And I, I used to try and go out my way to explain that, you know, this isn't just about maternal bonding. If you, you know, if you can get paternally bonded to that child it will pay huge benefits further down the line because you'll you'll be far more able to understand what it is to be child focused and child oriented rather than sort of you know selfishly masculinity oriented so you know if if the worst scenario plays out and the couple separate and stuff the guy is much more prepared to or much more able to put the kids first because it's not just all about his rights and his needs and his wants. He's more fully understood what it is to put the child first because he's been been allowed and enabled and facilitated to do that right from the get-go. So he develops that loving bond that in a way almost automatically makes him put the child first. And I've also tried to explain to the mums that it, I know I understand that that's <laughs> a sacrifice of probably the only area in life where you've got any power and control. But you know it will benefit you in that you'll be you'll be freer to do things because he's because so many women couldn't leave the babies and the kids for you know two or three years. They were just totally tied. They either didn't trust. The partner again not in a nasty sense not thinking he was going to deliberately harm but just that he didn't know what he was doing because he'd never been allowed to how would he know what he was doing if he's never done it so it's like get involved early get your partner involved early and it will pay benefits for him and for you but most importantly for the child so it's, it's trying to it I mean this is all about gender being relationships. You know, we, we so often get presented with this idea that it's all just about sex roles and it's always presented as this polarised thing, but it, it, it's nothing like that. It's about, it's about sets of relations. So if you can work, and I think, you know, they've started doing a lot more of this now in projects around gender that work with men. They've, they're doing a lot more gender transformative work aren't they sort of internationally you know so they've realized that if you want to you know if you want to reduce male violence either male on male or male on female you need you need to do something that facilitates a transformation of how men understand view and most importantly practice gender because it is all about sets of relations I mean you might you might be aware that that was a big thing that happened at the Beijing women's convention some point in the nineties. I can't remember when it was, but I think it was really hotly debated at this particular convention in Beijing about whether or not the women's movement should be encouraging work with men. Um, And I think it got passed as a motion that they should. And, And to me, it's a no brainer. Of course they should, because you know, if you improve things for men, you'll improve things for women. Most of the most of the projects that are, are really good projects that work with male perpetrators actually have a deep-seated empathy for the guys that they're dealing with. Um, I've been lucky enough over the years to come across a, a couple of amazing feminist women that have worked in. Male perpetrator programs, Um, and and one in particular, you could just see, you know, you could just see that she, despite some horrendous personal experiences of her own, she just really loved the guys that she was working with. She loved these male perpetrators, and I think she understood, you know, she had that empathic understanding of where where these things had arisen for them, and what it was that they needed to help. Get them out of these repeated patterns of abuse. So
0: yeah,
1: sorry, I've gone off on a bit of a run.
0: <laughs> no, I think that's beautiful. I think it's interesting that you said that. I mean, in order for there to be change, we have to stop shutting people out and shutting people down for for certain things, especially if it's based on gender. So if we want men to be able to care about children more, 100, you know, bring them into the childcare system earlier on and have them figure out a role for themselves and be able to define themselves because empowering others is going to empower others. And I think the point of contention there is if many men have been experiencing the shutdown as an, oh, this is a woman's conversation. You're not allowed to talk about this. Go do your men's stuff over there the other side of the table. They then we'll take that same behavior and be like, well, these are men's issues then, and I'm going to call them A, B, and C. And since you're a woman, you can't be in this conversation either. And then so both of us are shutting each other out. When I guess now in the 21st century, women are pushing past those shutdowns and saying, well, no, we deserve this conversation. And we're going to sit at this table regardless if you're going to shut us out or not. And we're just going to all talk louder than each other until somebody wins. And I think that's, That's where men are just like, okay, well, now we can't win with anything because they're shutting us out, and then they're also not staying silent when we're trying to shut ourselves shut them out either. So, in reflection on that, how would you encourage then other men to to do what some women have been doing recently, like including myself, in being more open and compassionate and hearing the other side because men have been shut down from women's issues for so long that there's already discomfort. There's already stereotypes. There's, it's already so much to even have a conversation with a woman you trust to let alone open up the whole women's issues conversation in a general sense for men to be involved in.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think these things are to me that they're even bigger than that because a lot of, a lot of the gender stereotypes become embedded in organizational structures, don't they? So I think one of the problems within a patriarchal system, especially a patriarchal system that has large inequalities of various kinds, you know, race, sexuality, gender. I think the problems, the problems become that when you're, when you're at the bottom, of the pile so i'm thinking now particularly of guys from incredibly poor locations so just locally to me there's an area in the town that i live in that's known to be especially impoverished it's one of the worst it's got some of the worst male health figures in the, in the country and i think if you're a guy a young guy in that situation it's, it's it's really difficult for someone who's got very little to be to to feel that they have to give up more when they've got very little to start with so if their only if their only sphere of control or the only sphere that they think they've got control over is their female partner that's really hard to give up when you've got so little else so I I think there's a much bigger issue here of trying trying to address some of these bigger concerns because it's only it's only when you start to address these bigger concerns when people aren't feeling that they're having to fight for everything all the time that you can be more that allows you to be more open about these things so I mean it's a slightly different example but I think it was Trotsky that wrote a little a little book called The Rise of Fascism. And, and what he explains quite simply in there is that the conditions that lead to fascism are condition, ultimately conditions of extreme poverty because people always begin to look for people to blame in situations of extreme poverty, whether that's localized poverty, national poverty, and obviously the, you know, the conditions in Germany at that time were they'd been hit so hard financially after the First World War that there was huge resentment and everyone was looking for people to blame. And you know, through various other factors, the Jews became the target. So these are the people, we'll give you someone to blame. These are the people to blame. And I think, I think it can be the same for guys in the current culture when they feel disempowered, they, they look for people to blame. And I think one of the situations that leads to men joining men's rights movement are situations of divorce and difficulties of accessing the kids. It's a huge driver because they suddenly find themselves completely disempowered. You know, I don't know what the figures are in the Americas, but over here, two-thirds of divorces are initiated by women. So you've got guys that don't want to believe in the marriage but are being forced into it. There's often, quite rightly, there's often a distribution of finances that benefits the woman because the kids are staying with the woman. So it's not done to benefit the woman. It's done to benefit the children, quite rightly, because they should be the main focus. But as well as then, you know, not not being in that loving relationship anymore being financially hit hard and then quite often having difficulties gaining access to the kids just just disempowered and it's it's really hard in that situation to say you know you need to transform yourself you need to see these things differently
0: <laughs> yeah 100% i mean it's i guess it's a little bit different over here it's i'm not sure the number I'm not sure about the distribution of which partner initiates the divorce, but I know that the large majority is that um, men get get the child uh, most of the time, and it is very oh. specifically focused on finances. So usually, if the man is making more money than the woman, it's whoever is making the more money gets the child, basically. What it's wow. like here. So
1: that's really um, different. It's really different here. So what happens here is the money follows the child. So yeah, exactly. if the child was going to the dad, then, yeah. you know, the bulk of the money would follow. And and similarly, ah. yeah. Interesting. So the, money, the money follows the child. The, the, the courts, so the court's premise over here is that any finances, there should be a 50-50 split of any marital assets, providing the marriage has been of a, a relative length. I don't don't think they define what that is, but I'm assuming something like it's more than two years, any marital assets would be split 50-50. That's the that's the starting point. And then what they look at next is the children. So for example, in my situation, when I left, my youngest child was 15. So she was still a dependent. So when the marital assets were split, my ex-partner got two thirds of the money and I got a third because there was still a period of time where the younger child would be at home. So if the child had been younger still, if my daughter had been younger still, I probably would have got virtually nothing. And that's what happens to a lot of guys in the UK.
0: Interesting. I think. I'm not sure what the system is, but I'm I'm I've experienced or I've learned that some women that did make more money than than their partners, you know, also had to debate on whether or not most of their assets would be taken away or halved in that sense. So I think the halving of finances is, is pretty pretty much the same in, in all facets. And I think that already contributes to, well, I'm used to make more money. It's not fair that everything's equaled out. And then once you add in the childcare aspect of who gets the, the child and whether or not there is an allowance or permission to see the child, I think that's when there's that that tension between partners, because now it's, it's totally left to the other partner that you've already created a sour relationship with to decide whether or not you have a positive or negative relationship with your child. And I think that is that could potentially be a lot of the source of the power dynamic of of feeling like disempowered, right? Because you don't have access to something that is yours, you know, that's something that you have created in essence, right?
1: Or even even if you do have access. So quite often, again, because of our system, quite often the the children will carry on residing at the same address with the woman a lot of the time because most of the assets would go to her. So wherever possible, they'll keep the child in the same house with the mum. So, you know, not only has the guy lost his relationship, but he's then having to move out um, often into accommodation that won't be anything like as nice as his marital home. And even if they've got agreed access it can, it's just not the same. So I don't know. You may use the same term over here, but the, they're often called McDonald's dads over here. Really? Because yeah. So <laughs> heard of that. yeah. So they, you know, they may only have. It's very common, for example, to have access every other weekend. Maybe maybe one or two hours in the week, and then every other weekend. So you've got a guy who's now living in say a small flat um that's not familiar to the children to start with what's he going to do so quite quite often they they'll be they'll go out so even when the dad has got them they're not in a family home environment you know they're often they're often i'll give you an example of my ex-brother-in-law it's exactly what happened with him he had two kids young kids when they separated. And he had them every other weekend, but he had a little flat. So they did stay there, but more often he would prefer to get out. So it became it became common that he would come round. This is when I was still married, he'd come round to ours on a Sunday with the kids because that felt it was a, you know, it was a family house, it was a family home, they were with their cousins, and it just felt more family-like.
0: Yeah. And I I don't know if that is more of a UK thing in like that desire to have a family structure with the home and the white picket fence and that structure to give the kids this, you know, version of what family life is supposed to be. But back to your conversation of just, okay, well, there's nothing left. Like, you know, imagine if someone is struggling for a job and then they lose their whole family, they lose their house, they lose the kids, you know, it's really difficult to be sympathetic of the other gender, especially if your partner is kind of representative of that gender and responsible for, you know, all of the the new hardships that you're experiencing in your life. But in retrospect, it's kind of like the, you know, not all men conversation, but yet many women have to suffer through living in the patriarchal system of just not getting enough of a salary. So no matter what, we're always, women are always going to be in some level of more impoverishment than men and you know, having to bear the children and all of these ex- external patriarchal norms that are, are given on to women. And I feel like there isn't enough compassion or attempt of understanding on, on a lot of the male side because like you said, they are so wrapped up in their own discomfort of their own self-identity that they don't have the capacity to possibly contemplate you know, another another side, especially if that side is is technically combative against them. So, what would you suggest on finding a little bit more of a middle ground? You having that you are a man looking more into that and being empowered through feminism conversations and also the study of masculinity to help other men open up to both self-reflection on themselves, but also start to open up that capacity and space to be more compassionate and understanding of other sides, whether it's gay men, whether it's men that are you know disabled or whether it's women and other gendered people.
1: So it's like with a lot of these things, it needs, it needs to start very early on, doesn't it? So I think we need to stop. We need to try and help parents to stop gender stereotyping so much. I think as a, as a first port of call, because once things become embedded, it's, it becomes much more difficult to change them. So I think we need to help parents, we need to help schools, and we need, you know, we need to find ways to begin those conversations at times that are difficult for, for guys. So a lot of suicides in men are related to exactly that sort of pattern that you described. So maybe, you know, maybe there's a, a threatened redundancy at work, or an actual redundancy at work, that then puts strain on the relationship. The relationship might break down. Then there's the difficulty seeing kids and stuff. So I think at these sort of points, these life change points, it would be good to be able to provide some sort of peer-generated peer support. So something that's less formal, but that comes from a... A grassroots understanding. So, guys that have been through some of these things and have found more positive ways to deal with it, and that that's not easy. And I think I think those sort of guys are still quite rare.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. I think it's interesting that you said that because there has been um, a, a wave, I think, or just a growth of more male peer-to-peer support spaces, specifically focused on mental health on just normalizing that conversation. So you're not just like having a beer and then, hey, let's talk about feelings. You know, it's like a dedicated space and and learning to practice that vulnerability. But I also think there's a little bit of a problem in the sense that it's only in an enclosed therapeutic space. You know, it's kind of like, oh, I can only practice AA at the AA meetings and then otherwise I'll just go back to drinking, right? So it's kind of not integrated enough in daily life yet to extend to having normal conversations with the opposite sex yet. So I wanna wrap up with a couple questions. I think a lot that we both have been studying is just how to get men to practice more preventative care. Because I think a lot of the times we're waiting until there's an emergency, you know, until your health is really deteriorating at a, at a rapid rate to suddenly slow down and then start to bring in that self-reflection. So how would you encourage that preventative care uh, on a personal level based on your experience?
1: So I think, you know, it's a really difficult question, again, because these things are embedded in structures. So I I often veer away from talking about individual intervention. If guys guys of a certain class tend to have more coping mechanisms, certainly in the UK, they're, they're more able to be emotionally articulate. It's more acceptable to be emotionally articulate. And they, they have a wider repertoire of coping mechanisms. I think for the guys that don't have that, then I think we're, we're involved in some really tricky situations, aren't we? Schools, schools already have so much to do. I'm sure it's the same over there. But here, the, the school curriculum is just crammed. So although you'll often hear people say, and I've said it earlier, you know we need to do work in schools around this i think we do i think there could be some sort of mental health first aid coping training built into schools in in the uk we have what are called pse lessons personal is it personal and social education i think it stands for and it's it's where you'd cover things like sex edu- sex and relationships education and all those sort of things so i think there might be scope within that part of the school curriculum to do some focused stuff, maybe even using similar techniques to CBT, you know, because CBT techniques seem to work quite well for men because they're action focused. So they're not just about what goes on in a therapeutic space. They're about things, goals that you go away and set for yourself and work towards in, in daily life. So maybe some sort of mental health first aid, education in schools. And I think if you've got sizable workplaces, you could also try and build it into the workplace. I know there's quite a lot of work going on at the moment that Movember are involved in. They're they're trying to do a lot of grant funding of work, looking at um, first responders. So police, fire, ambulance, healthcare staff, male first responders, although it's it's opened up to their families as well. So I think that sort of thing in a workplace, I know there was some years ago when I did a trip to Canada, there was some very good work going on with peer support around mental health in the workplace for men. I think it was in Quebec, and I think it was called the Sentinel Programme, I think. And you know, so they trained people up to be aware of what to watch out for. In terms of early signs of depression or suicidal behaviour. And I think the more people that you can train up in that sort of way to at least recognize and then move, maybe move beyond that for those where you do recognise to be able to provide something, perhaps CBT based, to help, you know, get a wider repertoire of coping mechanisms. I think I think those are the sort of things that I think could work.
0: Yeah. I think that's, that's a great start, you know, like educating kind of from a younger age to integrate that into schools, you know, adding in also that practical practice element, and then, you know, bringing also to the workforce so that it's kind of literally daily life. Right. And then I guess my question to you is on a personal time at home, you know, how would you practice that that curiosity of your own self-reflection, as I think you mentioned, that was a apparently very feminized space, self-reflection. So in, in your studies and, and coming to terms with that, what was the greatest learning for you in your self-reflection or giving yourself that time for self-reflection?
1: The biggest learning point, and by this time I was already into my, my work on gender and masculinity and health. Um, so I'd, These were things that I was already thinking about, but the, the biggest learning point for me was shortly after getting divorced and losing, losing contact with my younger child, the one who was 15. So I lost contact with her for two years and it would have been incredibly easy to just blame my ex-partner for that. 'Cause I know I know full well that my ex-partner would have been saying things to her and making it difficult for her to see me. I know, I know that would have been going on. So it would have been very easy to focus on that and to do what a lot of guys do in that situation and get, you know, into the men's mm-hmm. rights stuff. And so I think there was a big point of reflection there, and that was about it was really reflecting on what's most important here. You know, at the time. I'd already been a health visitor. So I understood what it means to put a child first, in theory, and in child protection situations, I understood it. So, but what did that mean for me in my situation? So I just had stepped away and gave her space. I used to write once every, say once every two or three months, and it would always be just an update of people that she knew in her life. So her uncle and some friends. That she used to go and stay with a lot. So just an update about what was going on, and then usually just at the end, just saying, you know, if, if you ever want to get in touch, please, you know, please feel free. So trying to keep it no pressure, but let her know that the door was still open. Um, and I can honestly say that was it was the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life because we were we were very very close, had a lot of friends, male friends, saying, you know, the usual stuff that blokes would say things like you know you know where she works because by this time she had a part-time job you know where she works go and see her you've got every right to go and see her and I'd be trying to say to them you know that's just going to put her in a really difficult situation that's going to make things worse for her and I would rather things were bad for me than things bad for her put her for um anyway it all worked out. So after two years, she got in touch. Uh, within a couple of months, she was living with me. And we, we now have a awesome, the awesome relationship that we had before all the divorce happened.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. And, and a, a fantastic example of putting children first. And yeah, that and realizing the conversation that yeah, male colleagues would have. It's like, it, you are completely in your right to do that, you know, especially when they are younger and and they're under your care technically, but to to give them that autonomy and, and ability to exercise their own selves, you know, and then things will work out the way that they should over time. So I'm, I'm really glad yeah. to hear that. Uh, my last question to you is, out of all the things that we spoke about today, maybe things that we didn't get a chance to speak about that, you know some gaps maybe in your research are there any topics questions concerns that you would like to invite another man to elaborate on further in another episode on the show
1: oh that is a good question i guess really some of these issues about access access to kids after separation because i think it does it does generate a lot of unnecessary bad blood And it it makes things difficult for everyone concerned. You know, it makes it difficult for the woman, makes it difficult for the child. And I can't imagine that most of the time it makes the guys very happy, you know, just being angry and bitter. So I guess I'd be interested in in hearing about guys' experiences around separation and, and access to kids. And maybe from what you've said, hearing about that, you know, across a couple of different cultural settings, I guess, you know, there's obviously a different culture in the, in the UK compared to the Americas by the sound of it, in terms of how finances and access to kids are dealt with after separation and divorce. So it'd be good to hear views from a couple of different country.
0: Nice. Yeah. I think access is a very interesting conversation because some things you have control over the access of your personal access to others or you might feel like you don't have control over that, depending if there are external factors that matter more to you, which is finance, status, class, you know, any things like that. So as you said, I think the conversation gets bigger beyond just just the gender divide when we talk about other people and our interactions with other people and the access we give or don't give to each other.
1: Yeah, 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 good, good point.
0: All right, well, thank you so much. This has been such a cool conversation. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And um, if there is anyone else that you know that would be interested in, in having a conversation like this, let me know. Um, I think I'm about 60 people in, so just well just over halfway. Yeah. So yeah, the conversations That's keep good. getting more interesting. Um, and I really appreciate this one because I think we kind of both deep dived into a lot of the psychological aspects of masculinity and the fear and you know, I really like um, your take on, on self-reflection and I am hoping that there's more of that activity in the current state of the world of men being more reflective and, and exercising. Yeah,
1: yeah. and it'd be nice to know, wouldn't it, as part of that reflection, how what coping mechanisms do they then put into place when mm-hmm. they reflect on things that are difficult? You know, because it, it needs to be reflection with a purpose, doesn't it? Yeah. So. reflection can (laughs) it's not always positive i know my my brother has had various types of mental health support over the years and he said one of the worst ones was this type of counseling where they just reflect everything back to you that you've said (laughs) yeah he was he was saying things like you know i was really angry about this and the counselor would be saying so that made you really angry. Yeah, it made me really angry. Oh, it made you really angry. Yeah, really, really angry. Oh he, came, he came out of the counseling session worse than he'd gone in, because there was no there was no purpose. It was just reflection. So reflection with a purpose, I think, is a, an interesting area.
0: Yeah, that's that's a really big distinction to say for sure, because If you're just, that's just you talking to yourself in a mirror versus you talking to yourself with intention and a desire and a curiosity to understand what lies beneath those feelings. Right.
1: Yeah. I've got a a friend who has a lot of depression and he finds it really hard to spend time on his own because he is, he is a thinker. He does reflect a lot. And for him, that's not a very positive process. So what he probably needs is he probably needs to learn how to reflect with a purpose to and you know the purpose being to to create something more positive
0: yeah and i think also to be able to articulate that and practice verbalizing those feelings more often in safe environments with people that he can trust as well because otherwise yeah when you are left with your thoughts your thoughts can take over you for
1: sure yeah yeah so always always a bit caution with reflection yeah (laughs)
0: So what do we think? Am I asking for too much or can men also start to pull up and be more compassionate towards both themselves and in their relationships among women? I think it all starts with the self, right? Tune in next week when I speak to a man who was denied access to his kids and how he had to heal himself before he was able to restore a relationship with them again. Make sure to subscribe. And if you'd like to be on the show or know of someone with a unique perspective, slide into my DMs at Miss Amanda Chen on Instagram. And I'll see you next Wednesday with more episodes of The Hundred Masked Men.